So while those are passed, uh, have some announcements in kind of three pieces. Announcements for today, for two weeks, and four weeks. Got it? So for today, first of all, thank you for those of you that found your seats pretty close to 830. So we, we have a blessing of enjoying one another's company. And uh, so just encourage you, help us all to, to gather up by 830. And that's going to help uh, get the service started on time. And we do that. And what I skipped was a, an emphasis to say welcome to new folks that are here visiting today. So we're delighted to have see a number of new people. Uh, would encourage you, the, we normally have some handouts that will kind of tell you a little bit about uh, Trinity Church. Those handouts are on my desk at home. So if you want to come by, I'll be happy to give you one. Uh, otherwise, uh, talk to anybody that you see up front today, or Paul Funches is our pastor there in the long sleeve blue shirt in the back. So if you haven't met Paul or Jeremy, make sure that you say hello. Uh, we're glad to have you here. Uh, the second thing for today is, uh, for those of you that aren't aware, the, the bread for communion is gluten and dairy free. So I was asked somebody, we get some questions from time to time, so just wanted you to know that. So that's today. Now, two weeks from today, at 5.30, we have a members meeting right here. So you know where it is, and you know what time it is. And really encourage you as members to come. That's really where we do family business together. And so that's not a, hey, if you feel like it. We really want to encourage you. This is a good time to gather as church family to share what's going on. And there are some things that are happening Uh, as we do that, one of which is we're going to be meeting some new members, so we're excited to do that. Um, We'll share a little bit about an opportunity for service. We're looking for someone that might like to do the Smiths, uh, took family pictures for all of us. We'd love to talk to somebody about helping with layout for a directory. Um, So you can do that, and hopefully we can have that announced in a couple of weeks. Um, the other thing that's on the agenda for two weeks at the members meeting, two weeks, members meeting at 530 right here, is to share an update on where we will be meeting together because we are going to take our tent down and go migrate now. And uh, starting October 2nd, which is four weeks from now, uh, we're going to begin meeting at Center Place. And so we have uh, entered into an agreement with Center Place. We've got that building reserved for another year, which is pretty exciting. Uh, the most, but we've got a six-week trial, let's call it that. And uh, what's exciting about Center Place uh, is it's going to allow us to expand our programming on Sunday to do uh, an education hour together that will follow the morning service. Um, so we'll have a couple classrooms available to us, a, a large meeting space for us together. So uh, four weeks from today on October 2nd, we'll begin meeting same time, different station out at Center Place. So you can look forward to that. Uh, one of the opportunities that comes with that as we have a, an education hour following the service is we're going to need some care for children uh, newborn to four, just as we offer here. As Paul shared last week, we love to have the kids with us in the service, squirreling around and all those things that kids do as we work at training them up, Um, but want to make that available for for parents that need it. And so we're going to do something a little different during that second hour, and that is ask if we could get three couples to commit to a six-week period in that so that it's not rotating every week. 
So we're going to be looking and asking for volunteers to do that so that once we get started over at Center Place, the, the worship time, the morning, t- the 8.30s time will be rotating in the nursery just as we do today. Um, or Trinity Kids, not a nursery, right? Um, so they'll rotate. Uh, but that second slot, we'd love to find three couples that would say, I'll raise my hand for the six weeks and, and do that. So be praying about that. Um, to that end, one of the other things that we encourage all members to do, in addition to come to members meeting, is to get a background check so that you're in a position to step in and help. And so we take seriously our responsibility to be watchful over our little ones. And uh, so background checks are very simple. You tell Seth, Rima, there he is waving his hand in the back, say, hey, sign me up and uh, run a background check. So Seth will do that. And I make that announcement today is important because the cost of doing those goes up uh, October 1. So if you haven't uh, had that done, um, it's pretty painless. Seth sends you, and you get an email back, and you're, you fill it out, and you're good to go. But the cost to the, ch- the church will pay the cost, but that cost goes up October 1st. So we just ask you to consider doing that. So that is the list of announcements. Two weeks, members meeting right here. 5.30, four weeks, center place, 8.30, seated at 8.30. Got it? All right, with that, I think, Jeremy, you're up. Thank you. Thank you, Ed, for all that information. What do we have in two weeks? Member meeting? Members meeting, that's right. Two weeks, members meeting. It is uh, good to see you all this morning. It is Labor Day weekend, and uh, many people take these this weekend as their final hurrah to try to get some camping in. Thankfully, all of you are here uh, this morning, and uh, it's just good to see you. We do have a, a rest from our labors in Christ, and that is what we're here to celebrate in part. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name is Jeremy. My name is Jeremy Kuhn, and I'm the other elder here. Uh, Paul and I serve alongside. He's the one that has to do most of the work, and I just get to chip in once in a while. Uh, but it is a, indeed a pleasure to uh, to be here with you and to serve with Paul in that way. And just like Ed mentioned earlier, if, uh, if you haven't met us, uh, please come and introduce yourself to us. We'd love to, to meet you, to see how we can serve you. Um, if you would stand with me this morning as we read God's word. This morning we're in Matthew 7. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Matthew 7. Verses 1 through 12. Follow along as I read. Judge not that you be not judged. For with a judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are kind to us and gracious to us and forgiving towards us. And as this text illustrates, we have a problem that we uh, often see the sins of others more than in ourselves. So we ask, Father, that your text would help illuminate um, our own sins this morning and also to show us that you are indeed a God who uh, gives us grace and gives us wisdom to, to deal with that problem and to deal with uh, the sins of others. We thank you for your grace in the church at large, how you are continually working through the preaching of your gospel to build up others, to build up your church, as we eagerly await the coming of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we live in a culture, in a time that is known as cancel culture. It's very prevalent right now. And if you aren't aware, cancel culture is the product of people exercising quick judgment that results in quick condemnation that has no opportunity for redemption, no opportunity for defense. We all tend to think that we know something about people, something important about them. And sometimes we're right, but that's not the point. The point is that we need to be very careful about the judgments that we make of others. And this portion of the sermon, it presents a prevalent problem that all people have including the disciples of Christ. And Jesus addresses his disciples as hypocrites here, indicating that the self-reflection is already needed to take place. And his straightforward language tells us that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with right away. And the issue is that we all have judgmental and self-righteous attitudes towards others. Jesus addresses this problem by telling them how they're supposed to act towards each other. And he reminds them of how God deals with his people. This section also demonstrates that God shows us grace beyond our failures, which gives us wisdom, gives us grace to move forward in our relationships. And this is important because this is how we seek to imitate Christ. It's how, as Jesus put it, that we pursue to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect which is what he said at nearly at the beginning of the beginning of his sermon. And these verses that we're dealing with this morning are the closing portion or the, the end of the body, the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. The theme of the sermon, if you haven't been with us for the previous parts, is that Jesus calls his disciples to a greater righteousness, a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And he describes what, the, he, what that looks like. He goes through what it looks like to follow the law from the heart, that we would seek peace when we're angry rather than retaliate, that we would seek purity when we're lustful, that we would honor marriage through difficulties, that we would honor our oaths instead of seeking self-interest, 
that we would bless people rather than seek vengeance. We are to love our enemies as God has loved us. We're to give, pray, and fast, not seeking reward from men, but to seek reward from God. And in the same way, to seek our eternal comfort and desires as treasures in Christ in order to avoid having anxieties about the things that we have now, which is what we looked at last week. All of this creates a really high demand because it goes against the self-exalting and self-pleasing desires of our flesh. Who wants to let go of a grudge? Who wants to fight against lust? Who wants to honor their agreements when it costs them something? These are all high demands and we feel it. But at the same time, we recognize that these commands, these demands are good. So when we come to these standards that Jesus sets in the Sermon on the Mount, if we approach it apart from understanding the relationship that we have with God in Christ, that we're completely dependent on his grace, and we seek to follow these standards, it leads us to something that's even more problematic, which is legalism or moralism. We get this attitude that I can do these good works and be right with God. And on the other hand, if we see that we are falling far short of all these things, it can create in us a whole lot of anxiety. But the danger is that it can lead to a self-righteousness when not balanced by a sober understanding of ourselves that leads us to have a condemning attitude towards others. Jesus knows our hearts. And so it's fitting for him to come to a close of the body of the sermon with this instruction about how to live righteously with one another. In our pride, we're judgmental. We like to sermon on how to deal with people. We like to sermon about what's going on with people. And that's the concern of this text. Matthew 7, 1 through 12, directs us about how to go through the complexities of our relationships in very simple terms. It exposes our self-righteous judgmentalism that we're all prone to. And more directly, it will teach us about how to have a, a charitable attitude towards others that we feel like we need to have a conversation or a conflict with. Which brings us to the main idea for this morning. The main idea is that the Father gives us grace so that his children can exercise righteous judgment with one another. The Father gives grace to his children so that you can exercise righteous judgment with one another. And there's three components to this, to exercise righteous judgment with one another. The first is that we do not run to condemn. We do not run to condemn. The second one is that we need to be examining our own hearts. And the third is that we need to be remembering God's grace to you. So first, you need to exercise, or you will exercise righteous judgment with one another when you do not run to condemn one another. You will exercise righteous judgment with one another when you do not run to condemn one another. So anticipating a self-righteous response to the sins of others, Jesus tells his disciples to anticipate this conflict. An anticipation of this response to others. So he tells them plainly not to judge. The first question that needs to be asked, though, is whether or not it's right to say that when Jesus is saying judge, is the same as me saying right now to condemn. Is this what Jesus means when he says, do not judge? Is he just talking about no judgment at all? People in our culture love to quote this verse 
don't judge unless you be judged, probably more than any other verse in the Bible, especially when a moral judgment is made or an ethical judgment is made or even some theological judgments are made. But Jesus didn't mean what our culture means when he says this. In fact, Jesus has been making judgmental statements all throughout this by calling people hypocrites. He calls people hypocrites here. He refers to people as dogs and pigs in this passage. And he also warns about eternal condemnation, essentially, as this passage comes to a close. So to talk about all of these things, even false teachers, clearly shows that there is not a statement here that's saying judgment altogether is out the door. But when this, ch- this term is used in the Bible, it's often associated with making some kind of decision and often in a, a decision in court. It can even be as simple as making a decision such as when Pilate decided to release Jesus. When the text is not explicit in that way, though, when it just says judge, it usually carries a verdict of guilt. And the parallel Luke records a parallel similar sermon that took place on a plane or a level place in Luke chapter 6. Luke records a condensed version of this sermon in which he says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. But he continues with these further statements, Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And these parallels make it plain that what's implied in Matthew's record also includes or is defined by condemning and not forgiving. It's to withhold forgiveness. So the judgment we are called to exercise is the kind that leads to love and leads to repentance. He gives a reason for not judging. Judge not that you be not judged. Jesus isn't isn't talking about some kind of judgmental statement that's being thrown back and forth on the playground where someone says some kind of insult and the other one says, I know you are, but what am I? That's not where he's going. What he's saying is that you will be judged by God. You will be judged by God. The measure that you use is the measure that will be measured back to you. He's warning his disciples that having this kind of hard attitude towards others, a judgmental, condemning attitude, is not in line with the greater righteousness that's expected of God's people. And the warning is that if you have that judgmental attitude— You cannot expect God's mercy on you. Luke's record cited just a minute ago reflects the reality when he says, condemn not, and you will not be condemned. This is also a warning who are hearing him that your righteousness is nothing. Your status as a believer at the very least is in question if you are characteristic of a condemning spirit, if you have no mercy coming out of you from your heart. In verse 2, Jesus builds on this point when he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Interestingly, most literally it reads, With the judgment you judge, you will be judged. With the measure you measure, you will be measured. So this is, works in two ways. It's a nice memory device for all of them to, that are hearing it, but it's a stark reality uh, that you will face what you dish out. Jesus has already established this point in the sermon that there's a, a, uh, a relationship between how we live and how God deals with us uh, in some measure. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
The inverse of this is true just by implication. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven others. And then he tells them, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What he is saying is the judgmental person, by not being forgiving, not being loving, testifies to his own arrogance, testifies to his own unbelief, by which he shuts himself out from the grace that God extends. Now, this is going to go against some of our sensitivities about the nature of our salvation. This is the kind of statement made, or this statement has made some question if this is what Jesus really meant, or even what he really said. Some have taken this wrongly to affirm that Jesus is speaking under the dispensation of the old covenant in which people had their relationship defined by the law, and that it wasn't until after the cross that we understand our relationship with God is merely by grace. But this doesn't make any sense. The message across the Bible is that God condemns sinners. And he's pointing out that your sin will lead to condemnation, unrepentant sin. The message across the Bible is also that God's people are expected to live righteously, even with Abraham. Abraham was counted as righteous because he believed God. End of story, right? No. He says in Genesis 17, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may establish my covenant between me and you, and you may multiply greatly. And this teaching isn't just restricted to the Old Covenant. It's also all over the place in the New Testament. James 2.13 is an example for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And if you're ready to reply that this is talking about unbelievers, I would say you're right. Those who exercise no mercy are not acting like believers. That is why Paul tells the Galatian church that the works of the flesh and those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says these things to show that there is a difference between those who will inherit the kingdom and those who he describes as a true believer, those who are walking by the Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit gives the one who is savingly trusting in Christ a new heart that is inclined to follow the law, which is what Paul says in Galatians 5.14. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is followed by a warning not to bite and devour one another, but instead to walk by the Spirit. And the fruit of that Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A Puritan pastor named Thomas Watson in his little book, A Godly Man's Picture, has a chapter called Comfort to the Godly near the end. This whole book goes through what it looks like to be a godly person. And in this chapter, he speaks of Christ's compassionate character, seeking to comfort his readers who realize they're not as godly as they should be, which should be anyone reading that book. But he focuses on Matthew's use of Isaiah in Matthew twelve twenty, and he says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And in the midst of drawing out how we can be comforted by this, he points out a sad reality. This is what he writes. See the different dealings between God and men. 
Men, for a little smoke, will quench a great deal of light. But God, for a great deal of smoke, will not quench a little light. It is the manner of the world, it's the manner of us, if they see a little failure in another to pass by and quench a great deal of worth because of that failure. This is our nature, to aggravate a little fault and to diminish a great deal of virtue. A great deal of virtue is ignored or stamped out when we are quick to condemn others for their sin. But why do we do this? Why do we pass judgment? I think a key reason for this is that we agree that the law is good, and we desire a greater righteousness. Does that sound weird, that we desire greatest righteousness so we condemn others? Well, let me explain what I mean by that. As I started with, Jesus explained what greater righteousness looks like. And the rest of the Bible tells us in many ways what it looks like to follow God, to follow Christ in, in lives of righteousness. So when we have a knowledge of what is right or wrong, and we have good definitions of sin and righteousness that's biblically informed, we begin to see sin more clearly. When we have convictions about what righteous behavior is, we tend to see that more clearly as well. And the problem that we run into is that when we desire personal holiness for ourselves, a lack of righteousness in others will start to stand out to us. Many times it's over secondary issues. Things that we make important are often probably in the category of preferences, even if they're biblically based. They're matters of conscience. So Romans 14, Paul addresses this when he talks about eating meat or observing certain days. Similar issues that we face today that are mainly preferential has led many people to pronounce others as, or even question whether or not they're standing with Christ. Take dating, for example. Some people think that it's not okay to date, and if they let their children, someone else lets their children date, then they must not be walking with Christ. Or there's questions about when to date, or who to date, or how to date. There's entertainment choices that we make that many of us will make condemning judgments about. What kind of entertainment? How much entertainment? There's many other examples that you can probably fill in the blanks with. But what the, when there is a desire for personal holiness, we often let our definitions of holiness become the standard. When we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we rightly want to bring others along. Because we know that this is a community project. We're to build one another up, to stir one another on to love and good works. But when we project our desire for holiness on others and then expect others to strive for the same kinds of things that we are, we can become judgmental. That is why we need to hear Jesus tell us not to judge. We need to hear things like Romans 14.4, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, he continues in verse 10. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And we also need to hear, perhaps more importantly, Romans 2.1. Paul indicts humanity. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And I think one other reason that we pass judgment in a way that goes against what Jesus says here is that because in our self-righteous attitudes, 
we tend to think the worst of other people. We'll hear gossip about someone or witness someone commit some kind of sin, and we think to ourselves, I can't believe he would do something like that. Or, that person is such a jerk, I can't believe they can't remember my name. I can't believe they would treat me like that. When we have thoughts like that, we're exposing a grim reality that we have forgotten where we have come from. We are filled with bitterness. We sit quite unhappily as someone's judge because we have determined that they are sinning against us or that they're worse than they are. James addresses these issues by saying that with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse others who are made in the likeness of God. And brothers, these things ought not to be so. So our pursuit of personal holiness, our desire for the church to grow in holiness as it seeks the kingdom and his righteousness, if we're not careful, it will lead us to a judgmental attitude. How do we move forward? How do we proceed? Well, first, we need to make sure that we're not one to run to condemn. And second, we need to be examining our own hearts. We can exercise righteous judgment with one another if we first examine our own hearts. That's what Jesus is getting to in verses 3 through 5, that we can exercise righteous judgment with one another by first examining our own hearts. When we get into verses 3 through 5, we see again that not all judgment is ruled out. These verses clearly show that there is a time in which some kind of judgment, some kind of confrontation is appropriate. And these verses give us a picture of how that can be carried out. As disciples of Jesus, we need to realize that why we are disciples of Jesus in the first place, which is we are sinners in need of a Savior. As his disciples, we know that we are sinners, and we should never be surprised that we see sin in other people who follow Jesus. But the point of this illustration is not to make that point. Instead, the primary concern is that we need to be aware and deal with our own sin first. Notice in verse 3 that Jesus is speaking about addressing a brother. This is important. We need to remember that our life in the church, as the people of God, is a life of encouragement towards maturity in Christ, which means that our motives need to be seeking the good of one another, and part of that is to confront sin. Part of seeking the good of one another is bringing their sins to remembrance, to attention. But that's not the first step that Jesus wants us to follow. The rhetorical question in verses 3 through five, three and 4, why do you do this, is answered in verse 5. And the way this he, that he puts this is really helpful. And there's a few t- details I want you to pay attention to. The first one is that Jesus points out the contrast between a speck and a log. This rather funny image shows a contrast in a matter of perception. And in this parable, the sin of our brother is barely noticeable. But our own sin is glaringly obvious, it's imposing, and I imagine it's pretty uncomfortable to have a log sticking out of your eye. But by using this funny analogy, Jesus is pointing out the irony of what really happens, that we minimize our own sin and inflate the sins of others. How often do I see the sins of others and ignore them myself? That's the question I need to ask myself. Take anger, for example. Is there somebody in your life who you think is an angry person? Does it come out often enough that you think you need to talk to them about it? Or how about this? When they're angry, when you decide to speak because they're angry, are you angry about it? 
Are you not aware that the anger that they're putting out of their mouth or with their language or with their body is probably not as bad as the anger that you're fuming with on the inside? Or how many times have you heard a strong exhortation for repentance for a certain kind of sin in a sermon or some other teaching and you sit there and pray that someone else you know in the church is paying attention? Or how often do you hear encouragement towards godliness and you pray that your spouse or your siblings or a friend is, is paying attention to this? How often does it happen in which you're not aware of your own sin or your own lack of godliness? Are you doing that right now? How often are you aware of the speck that's in the other person, the insignificant little flaw, while you ignore the glaring problem that's in yourself? The second contrast that Jesus gives is between the word see and the word notice. See is a word that does mean careful examination, but it's an act of the eye, the physical eye. It's external. Notice is a word that has also careful examination, but it's an internal word. It's a word that's referring to an act of the mind. So it's really easy to see the external acts of others. They can be obvious to us, just as the sun is obvious to us shining in the sky. The hard part is paying attention to yourself. Seeing your own sin can be as hard as seeing a a mouse in a wheat field, for example. That's why he uses the word notice. I'm talking about the log in your own eye. You need to be self-aware. You need to be introspective. You need to be honest. Essentially, you need to be humble with yourself and with God. And not taking this critical step of self-humbling examination before speaking to a brother or a sister about their sin makes you a hypocrite. And don't just take my word for it. It's right there in the text. You hypocrite. How can you seek to rebuke someone else's sin when you have not dealt with your own? Now, I want to be clear, this is not a call to not rebuke sin at all. We are called to do so many times. Verse 5 makes this clear, but we must do, we must deal with our own sin first. When we seek reconciliation or restoration in a relationship, we must do so humbly, likely by confessing our own sin first. Jesus addresses dogs and pigs. There's two ways that we can think about this. One is whether or not the person that we're dealing with is, is being stubborn and whether or not they're going to receive instruction. What I think he really is talking about is that this is not the type of approach that we take with unbelievers. That was the typical contrast at the time that Jesus was saying this is referred to unbelieving Gentiles as dogs and pigs. And they don't receive the exhortations to holiness in the same way. That's what makes them hostile to us, in addition to the fact that they are called to repentance. But when we push these moral standards that we're looking for, the ethical standards that the believer, the believing community is expected to exercise on unbelievers, we're making unrealistic expectations. We're expecting them to act like the Holy Spirit works in us in the same way it would work in them when they don't have the Holy Spirit. Which really is, it's a false gospel to hear Um, exhortations to quit doing this or that, to repent of particular sins, when what we really need to do is to turn them to the reality that they are all in sin, which is essentially what the gospel is. We need to tell unbelievers that we all fall short of the glory of God. 
He does not leave us in that desperate state of hope, though, because he has loved the world so much that he sent his only son to die. He gave up the son, Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty for sin to turn for him, that we would turn to him. 1 Peter 3.18 writes, that For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's through our trusting belief in Christ that we receive the gift of salvation, that we receive salvation for our sins. And it's only then that we receive the divine power that God has granted to all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ. And it's then that we pursue holiness. It's then that we urge people on to to repent of particular sins. But when we deal with unbelievers, we need to make sure that we're giving that whole gospel. And if you're here today and you don't have that relationship with Christ, I urge you to, to hear those words that all have sinned. All of us need to have that re- restored relationship that we have in Christ alone. And from that point forward, all of these instructions that deal with the particular areas of our life, that's when these come in. These are the judgments that you will hear the, the evaluations that you will hear from those who love you about how you need to turn to Christ in a way that honors him as his follower. A couple of weeks ago, Dan referenced uh, this passage. Dan Jarms was here. He missed it, referenced this passage in Matthew 7 and a book called Resolve, Resolving Conflict by Lou Priolo. And it must be God's way of telling us that we really need to hear this again because I was planning on using this illustration before I heard that Dan did it. Um, but anyways, Priolo listed three categories of conflict, and these are really helpful. Um, that we have conflict because of differentness, different backgrounds, different ways of doing things. We also have conflict because of sinfulness. Either we sin or we're sin against. And there's conflict because of righteousness. Now, this is the conflict that arises because of how we perceive we ought to live, because of how we understand biblical principles. And we may or may not be right, as, as far as how we do these things, but Priolo, he follows the course of this passage that we must first examine ourselves. When we judge others because we are seeing the speck in each other's eyes, we're creating a conflict because of righteousness. And a perhaps, perhaps a better way to say it is that we're creating conflict because of self-righteousness, if we're really looking at this passage right. As we, see, as we seek to rightly respond to Jesus' words here, We need to not shy away from it, but we need to examine ourselves first. We need to do the hard work of looking at our own hearts. We need to be aware of our own sin, and we need to confess it. First to God, and possibly, and even probably, to the person that we want to talk to before we rebuke them. Galatians 6.1 is a key summary of how to deal with this. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul's really aware, just as Jesus is, and just as we all should be, that at any moment, at any time, that we are all capable and possibly quite guilty of the same sin that we see in someone else. So in order to exercise righteous judgment, we need to go with an attitude that's not condemning. Second, we need to have a self-examining heart. And third, we need to remember God's grace to you, which brings us to verse 7. Verses 7 and 11 come quite abruptly in this sermon. There's not a clear trans, uh, connection, transmission in the passage uh, that's nearly as obvious as the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, 
But when we think back at what I've already said and, and what we see here in the passage, is that the, the Lord has demanded an extraordinary set of qualifications for his disciples. And they're called to have a greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. They're supposed to be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect. And now he's proceeded to call upon his disciples to put aside all self-promoting interest in order to seek the well-being of others. They, these things can be so overwhelming for us who know we fall short of who we are called to be. So these verses can act and do act as words of comfort. Again, I'll read it. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So verses 7 through 11. They're a reminder of God's gracious and generous disposition towards you that you need for yourself as you seek to be, be good and give what's good to your brother. And that, that is really our third point. We need to exercise, or you will exercise, righteous judgment with one another when you remember that God has been gracious to you. You will exercise righteous judgment with one another when you remember God's righteous judgment with you. So what do we ask for? What do we seek? What do we knock for? The, there's many things that we need uh, for our pursuit of personal, worked-out righteousness that is befitting our status as God's people, as his saved people. We can trust that he will give us what we need, what is good for us. So what do we ask? I would, uh, I'll give you seven, seven things that you can be asking for. Uh, but first I want to point out that this is not a blank check. This is in the context of relationships. The good things that we should ask for, though, is that we need to be asking for our own forgiveness. This is emphasized in the Lord's model prayer in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew six twelve through 14, again, he says, Forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We need to ask for forgiveness because we need forgiveness. Second, we need to ask for wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom is needed to draw out what is in our own heart, and also to draw out what's in the heart of others. We need wisdom. Third, we need to ask for grace. This is especially important in dealing with sin and conflict that can lead to condemning judgment. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. We need God's grace to keep us from becoming bitter, especially when we're sinned against, things that would lead us to be condemning towards others. Fourth, we need to ask for faith. Faith in our God, a faith that comes from knowing who he is and what he has done for us and our salvation, leads us to be able to forgive others. 
In Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus tells his disciples, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. How do his disciples respond to this? Verse 5, they say, increase our faith. They need to have God's, they need to have faith in what God has done for them in order to have the power to forgive the sins of others. Fifth, we need to ask for patience. God is especially patient towards us. His patience and his kindness is what leads us to repentance. And we are in great need of patience with one another. Jesus points out that the basis of the plea for forgiveness in his parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Uh, the, verse, the servant in verse 26, he falls on his knees imploring his master, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And then shortly after, a fellow servant says the same thing. He falls down, pleads with the other servant, have patience with me and I will pay you. Well, that wicked servant refused. And that is what he was rebuked by his master for. We need patience. Sixth, we need to ask for love. Jesus had warned earlier in the sermon that anger in the heart is as if one has already murdered Paul knows that when we are sinned against, we are wanting our pound of flesh. And this is why he wrote, writes in Romans 12, verses 17 to 19, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. And in 1 Peter 4.8, we read, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. The sins that we deal with from other people, we need love to cover those sins. We need love. And seventh and lastly, we need to ask for the unity of the Spirit to be working in us. In Luke's parallel of this section on asking, seeking, and knocking, instead of saying the Father will give good things, Jesus says the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. We all have the Holy Spirit when we believe in the Lord Jesus. He indwells us if we're in Christ. But because we're still waiting for the fullness of our redemption, we still have our own sins to deal with, we're plagued by it. So Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that we are to be eager, urgent, zealous to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he also writes that we need to pursue this by urging one another along towards maturity, speaking the truth to one another, ridding ourselves of all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, and instead to be kind to one another, forgiving each other. This is the Spirit's work in us, and we need to submit to the Spirit to have the unity of the Spirit. Jesus moves on to talk about the generosity generally of fathers, earthly fathers, whom he says they are evil because of their sin. He compares them that these earthly fathers, even though they're evil, will give good things to their children. You know, none of us is going to give a snake or a scorpion to our, our son when they're asking for some food or give him a rock when they're asking for bread. So he compares the goodness of sinful men to the greater goodness of God. God has a greater generosity than any of us could ever imagined. 
And that's what he wants his disciples to remember. What does the scripture say about the disposition of our father towards us? Well, God had revealed himself to Moses as merciful and gracious in Exodus 34. And this is picked up by almost every Old Testament author. We read it earlier from Psalm 113, again in Psalm 86, verse 5. But you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the character of your God. Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. In the New Testament, we read more of God's loving disposition. Famous verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Paul writes in Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As far as his generosity, in Romans 8.32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul writes in Ephesians that we are by nature children of wrath because of our sinful rebellion against God. But then he declares God's love for his people in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. John writes in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And in verse four, chapter 4, verse 10, he writes, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is all over the Bible as far as his disposition towards his people. He wants what is good for us. He gives what is good for us. Jesus' disciples, of course, didn't have everything that we have, but they knew what the law and the prophets asked for. They knew what the law and the prophets declared about who God was. They heard Jesus teaching specifically about this when he talked about prayer, about their Father in heaven, and that he, sought, he is to be sought as the source of their daily bread and that he forgives. And they have heard that the Father rewards his people, that he provides for his people. More than anything else, they have a Father in heaven who forgives them of their sins so that we would have forgiving dispositions toward one another. So when it's time to speak to a brother or sister about sin, we need help. But God promises to give us that help. And he is happy and he is eager to give you that help. So when we remember God's grace to us, we'll know that we can ask for what we need because we do not have to exercise judgment apart from him. And when we do ask for what we need, we will be able to exercise that righteous judgment in a way that lovingly builds up one another. So, again, the Father gives grace to his children so that you may exercise righteous judgment with one another. You need to remember that God is as eager to forgive you as the prodigal was, the son of the prodigal was to forgive his son. The father of the son, the father of the prodigal. You know what I mean. 
But this is the attitude that we need to have in order to interact with others. We need to have that eagerness to forgive, an eagerness to restore, and an eagerness to draw somebody closer to Christ. So don't be surprised when other people sin against you. Don't be hurt by it in such a way that you're not ready to get over it and to move towards not pronouncing judgment, but to bring them closer to Christ. When we seek to correct, that's our motive every time, is to restore them. So we need to prayerfully seek God's grace, we need to seek his wisdom, and we need his guidance so that we can exercise that greater righteousness that Jesus calls us to. So in closing, I just leave you with Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, again, we give you praise that you are God, full of steadfast love, mercy, forgiveness, grace, goodness. You are more than we could ever be because you are God and we are not. We are full of sin. We are full of judgment. We are full of self-righteousness. And we need your grace so that we can act rightly towards one another, so that we can have the right kind of judgment going on among one another in a way that is pleasing to you, that exercises love, that is a testimony to the world at the same time that the, the relationship that we have with one another is all based on the restored relationship that we have with you. Father, I pray that we would learn from this, that we would be mindful of our own hearts, that us seeking reconciliation for our own sin would prioritize how we move forward in our relationships. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.